the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie, CD, Deputy Commander of the 3rd Canadian Division. I will say I'm a bit of a self-admitted adrenaline junkie, uh, kind of always have been. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. On our last episode, I asked for some feedback with regards to whether or not I should include the current appointment with the name of the person that I'm interviewing. And Warrant Officer Mike Case from the Lawrence Scots replied, and he told me, yeah, absolutely, you should include the name and the current appointment that the person holds. I think that regardless of whether or not that person moves out of that appointment later in life, it's what they're currently holding or what they've achieved during their military career. So I'm going to take that advice and I'm going to include the title or the appointment of the person regardless of where they are in their current military career and what they may eventually grow to become. Today's interview is with Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie. General McKenzie joined the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada as a private and then eventually transferred to the PPCLI. He made a transition back to the primary reserve, and he also accepted a career with Vancouver City Police. So he's had an opportunity to work with the primary reserve and the regular force, as well as being a police officer. He has deployed to some exotic places like Central America, to Cyprus, and also to Afghanistan twice. General McKenzie currently holds the appointment of Deputy Commander of the 3rd Canadian Division. So here's my interview with Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie. Brigadier General McKenzie, welcome to the podcast. Mike, thanks very much, and my pleasure to be here. So you and I first met, sir, during our pre-deployment training in Kingston in November 2010, and I believe that you were slated to return to Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I had, uh, in 2009, pretty much the whole year, I'd been in Afghanistan in Kandahar, and I was asked a little less than 10 months uh, after returning home, I was asked to go back to a specific job to be the senior advisor to the Afghan border police. So I was in Kingston for, you know, the sort of individual pre-deployment training. I went through a major road to high readiness previously, and this was sort of these individuals that go off on tours to uh, different places in the world and do about three weeks in Kingston to, to get them ready for all the things that you come up during operations. I felt it was quite interesting to have such a disparity of ranks on our pre-deployment training. We had everyone from a Navy captain to corporals and everything in between. It was quite a good course and quite a good group. I don't think we'll ever have the horsepower to pull off a reunion or anything of that <laughs> nature. It was definitely a good group and we certainly came together well. No, that's for sure. I mean, uh, with individual augmentees, of course, you have everything from perhaps a driver who's going into a mission somewhere in the world on an individual task to senior NCOs going into a task force to senior officers, and in, in my case, and a few others going in as senior advisors or other year-long postings in different parts of the world. So it was a really unique experience, I think, for everyone that was part of that training to get the same sort of individual skills that you need to just do your job in the mission from an individual perspective, not necessarily the mission tasks you have. Absolutely, sir. Now, I sent you the questions in advance. Did you have a chance to look over the questions, sir? Yes, I have, for sure. Excellent. I would like to know why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces. My father spent 35 years in the RCMP, so as a a young fellow, I moved around the country, uh, different places, Regina, Ottawa, Victoria, Vancouver. My father was in a service, uh, in service to Canada. My mother was a nurse. I grew up in Ottawa during the time of uh, the October crisis, the FLQ crisis. So I saw some unique things as a young fellow. And as I went through high school, I sort of tossed and 
turned between whether I wanted to be a police officer in Vancouver or whether I wanted to join the Army. When I was in high school, it was around the time of the Falkland Islands War, and I was very interested in the deployment operations of the Royal Marines, the Parachute Regiment, some of the special operations, special boat service things that were going on there. That sort of took me in a bent in a road uh, and joining the Army Reserve initially, and I did quite well, and that's where the sort of the story starts while I was in university as a young soldier in the Army Reserve and then goes from there. What was the world like when you joined? You touched on the Falkland Islands. Sure. Well, at the time, I joined the forces in 1985, and I started sort of the process of applying a couple of years earlier. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to military college. I, I did want a degree in geology and went to UBC, so that, that took me down that road, and, and hence the Army Reserve. But it was still the Cold War. There was the Soviet Union and uh, Western powers and NATO, and so that time was very different. And as I went through university and from 1985 to 89, graduated and went to the Patricias in, in 89, it was right around the time that the wall fell. So it was a very unique time in the world when it came to sort of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of sort of the the unique nature of counterinsurgency, small wars, nation building, all all the things that have happened since then around the world. So the the start of my service was right around the time the wall fell, if I can put it that way, into the world uh, that we see today. So it was an ever-changing environment at that time. So which unit did you join in the Army Reserve first, sir? Well, I joined a unit in Vancouver called the C-4th Highlanders of Canada uh, with a name like Mackenzie. They happened to wear the Mackenzie tartan and trace lineage back to Scotland to the chieftain of the clan Mackenzie, actually. So it was kind of uh, unique for me to join a unit that won my family tartan and Scottish heritage and whatnot. I joined as a private soldier in the summer of 1985. And then the, the following year, you know, I began officer training and uh, trained in the summer while I was going to university. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Seaforth Highlanders because I was just chatting on Facebook this week about how much 32 Brigade in Toronto has been feeding the succession plan of the Seaforth Highlanders lately. And we're sending another sergeant from the Queen's Own back to the Seaforths this week. So he'll be returning to the Seaforths back to where he started. No, that's great. Certainly, as people move around in their civilian careers around the country, one of the, uh, to speak very fondly and, and strongly about the Army Reserve, is people bring their diverse backgrounds and civilian careers to the Army Reserve. They also move around and, and can and join units and transfer, and there's you know, sort of lifelong friends that you make around the country that way. What were you like when you joined, sir? Um, I was... Uh, Sort of an adventurous young guy, I, I will say I'm a bit of a self-admitted adrenaline junkie, uh, I kind of always have been. When I was in university, I had a couple of passions. I loved alpine skiing, so whenever I could, I skied at the local mountains here, Whistler and, and uh, Mount Baker in the U.S. And I was a fairly avid scuba diver at the time, something that sort of fell off my map these days. So and I, and I had been a, a motorcycle racer as well, and, and a bunch of other sort of uh, outdoor sports that I enjoyed. So my passions of outdoors and sort of studying earth science and geology, that's part of the reason I went to the infantry. And I also mentioned my sort of interest in the Falklands and what happened there. So all of those things wrapped up into uh, why I chose to become an infantry officer and be a grunt and pound the ground and carry a rucksack and do that kind of work. Exactly. Sir, what was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Really, I, I, there's, there's sort of twofold. Uh, it all surrounds uh, what, what are really sort of penultimate times uh, in, my, in my Army career. I joined the Army Reserve with the intention of going to the regular Army, did that, and then transferred back to the Army Reserve here in B.C. Through all of that, I served on numerous operations, even operations and other things, some domestic operations. And the war in Afghanistan, I felt as a leader, I had many soldiers going from the Sea Force where I was commanding officer, and I felt I had to go. So my two experiences there, uh, the first one was 10 months in Kandahar, and the second being 
a year based out of Kabul, working as a senior advisor to the Afghan border police and traveling around the country. So they're sort of inseparable in one way to me, but two unique experiences that sort of like to speak about separately. And I think probably my most memorable experience, and I'll separate memorable from challenge, is my second tour when I really felt I understood after living with Afghans for 10 months previous, understood reasonably well some of the layers of the onion, and as I'll put it, in the culture and country and the conflict in Afghanistan, and was able to understand a few layers down, I would say. And to be able to work at the national level with the Afghan border police, which was truly a critical organization in you know, regional stability with uh, borders of Pakistan primarily being a huge issue of stability as well as the others, but also a very important aspect for the Afghan government to generate revenue, international revenue, by improving how they controlled their borders. And there's a couple of pieces to that that uh, if I can describe here. One is the border police, it's a, the second largest police organization in the country, approximately 23,000 members by the time I was there in 2011. And that was a peak time for the NATO training mission in Afghanistan and, and the building of security forces when it came to the amount of resources being put in. That was the peak year, just around $12 billion total for the Ministry of Interior and Ministry of Defense. So the Afghan border police in context had two parts, really. One was the border crossings and airports, 13 border crossing points, five major airports, four of them international. Some of those border crossings had... Uh, water and river in the north. And then a more paramilitary part, and that was the Border Kandak of 34, plus a few others that were reserve organizations. And really, at the time, they were really focused on the, this paramilitary role. And we, for ease of discussion and translation, I did study Daria for ease of this discussion and translation, we came to agree on some terms which sort of matched international norms. But to say the blue border rule, which was the more traditional police role, so that is crossing points and airports, and then a green border rule, meaning the paramilitary. And there was an imbalance of about, in my view, an imbalance of about two-thirds of the green border forces in this organization, and about one-third, roughly, in the blue border. So I really, as a police officer in my current job as a civilian, I felt, you know, I really needed to understand where the senior Afghans were coming from in this imbalance and, and look at, in their minds, how we should set about correcting this balance, as I said, for not only the border control, but also generating revenue for the country. And literally, that took the understanding of that and the agreement and getting, when I say agreement, meaning understanding what the Afghans want and getting all other stakeholders to agree that that was the way forward. That took about 10 months of my year-long tour to, to get to that point. However, at that point, it was, again, as I said, we were at a very unique time. It was at the peak of resources, and I set on briefing, a very specific brief to General Caldwell, commander of the NATO Trading Mission in Afghanistan, on what really amounted to the first sort of true rebalancing of Afghan security forces as a whole across the Army and police. And that was to focus the efforts in the border police on the blue border mission, so to more professionalize them at the border crossing points and airports. And, and really we started in the main, the first step to that was at the international airport in Kabul. But to look at the green border rule at the sovereignty mission, as we term it, is more of a, an army mission. So the ANA, Afghan National Army, to take on more of the sovereignty role in protecting the borders, because largely uh, in some areas it was just the border police. And that really isn't protecting your country along the borders. Truly protecting it is not a police role. Uh, really, that's a role of, a, of an army. So just to set that in motion took the 10 months. And we did get there and, in fact, briefed at the highest levels. And I'll, I'll go quickly now as to where we went with it. But through the commander of ISAF, 
staff, General Allen, U.S. Marine Corps four-star, and then with our team and the Afghans together, uh, meeting with the National Security Advisor to the Afghan president to look at how we would rebalance this to take some of the forces in these the green border role, that paramilitary role, and put them into the more of the police role, and in, in some respect, actually give away some of that sort of force and, and manpower staffing to the army, which was quite controversial for an Afghan to give up any sort of power control. Right, absolutely. And force. And it truly, there was a, there was sort of a, a pinnacle day when Lieutenant General Norzai, who was, uh, was the primary advisor for, but also was an advisor to his executive chief and others, uh, one star and two stars, that he would talk about how he wanted more from the army along the borders. And one day he said, we want these heavy weapons and other things, AK-47s, to do our job because we need them to do our job. We really should just have pistols. And that was his way, in my view, in translation, that was his way of describing how the border police needed to be police in the international sense and not paramilitary fighters. Right. It was a huge challenge. We started down that road by the time I left theater. We were down that road. In the end, it, it didn't change wholesale as much as uh, I think watching it after I left as much as uh, I would have liked. But to actually get key power brokers in the country thinking that way and understanding how each other think about it to look at making the border police an organization that could help do what traditionally police at a border do, control things coming and going in the country, as well as generating revenue, assisting the Ministry of Finance and generating revenue for Afghanistan. That was another huge, huge piece because they weren't really, right. although they were generating revenue, it wasn't necessarily going into uh, into government <laughs> government coffers, if I, can, if I can put it that way. I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Before we move on to the next question, you kind of teased the audience here at the beginning of your answer by stating the other missions that you were on, and then you went straight to your mission in Afghanistan. What were the other missions that you were on before Afghanistan? When I was a young platoon commander in 2nd Battalion Patricia's, I did a UN mission in Cyprus a couple of decades ago now. And then in the early 90s, I took part in two missions, sort of back-to-back. -back. I went to Central America. It was the observer mission in Central America five countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. And it was the, the mission was to, interestingly enough, monitor cross-border use by either government forces or insurgent forces, whether they were staging or using another country's territory, crossing borders to do that. So if the fight was going on within a country, we weren't really concerned about that from our mission's perspective, but we were either flying or driving near the borders to watch for this kind of stuff. So that, that was, I was in uh, Guatemala, for the first part of that mission. And then at that time, we transitioned to a, a second mission in uh, El Salvador, which was the demobilization and concentration of forces. So the guerrillas there, insurgents agreed to, the FML and agreed to put down arms and become part of the, the solution. So it was really the end of the war in uh, an insurgency in El Salvador and the start of what became a human rights mission, which involved quite a number of police officers there. So those are uh, two missions that I, I took part in in the early 90s. So who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character you've encountered? I wish I could say there was just one, but I think I have to go to three <laughs> if I can do that. Not a problem, sir. Uh, yeah, and, and they all truly, they were influencers for me when I was young and new to the forces as a young soldier and then as a, as a young officer. So the first, I'll just mention them and then I'll go to each one in turn. So the first was my first platoon sergeant, Sergeant John Hawthorne. So this is when I was a young private in basic training with the Sea Force. And he later actually became my first platoon warrant when I became a platoon commander. But So he, he was the, the first. And the second, sort of at the same time, uh, when I started officer training the following year, in Gagetown at the time, uh, Major Ike Kennedy was at the infantry school, the OC of the leadership company. I think many of my generation uh, know him all too well. He was truly a character and an icon that trained a, a generation of infantry officers. 
Sir, I believe Lieutenant Colonel Vernon brought him up in his episode. Yeah, no, I, not not surprising at all. Not surprising <laughs> at all. Uh, and at the same time, my my own section commander, uh, a warrant officer, Scotty Cowan, who was a Patricia warrant officer, master sniper type. And in fact, he was a he joined the Patricias from the Sea Force, and he was a third generation Sea Force. And he was my section commander on, on my first course. So those are the three. I've got to say three because I, I can't I can't exclude any one of those three. But I'll go back to. Uh, uh, John, Sergeant John Hawthorne, truly a really a, an ethical, strong leader, a great personality, and a, and a great role model for young soldiers. I guess I was t- about 21 at the time, and was in university for a bit, so a couple of years older than some. You know, a lot a lot of our folks were 18 years old. So mind you, at 21, I wasn't the old man or anything like that. But it was a basic training, a summer training company in Nanaimo that was from the four infantry units of D.C. And I think it was a quite a large company, if I recall, it was about 150 students, candidates, uh, young soldiers. And just his ability to lead by example, set example, tell stories and do some other professional development. I distinctly remember one night, of course he kept us busy all the time as a platoon sergeant would, but one night as we got closer to the sort of middle of the course, he sat us down to watch The Man Who Would Be King with Sean Mm -hmm. Connery. One of my favorite movies, and the tune is The March of 32 Brigade as well. Uh, Isn't that something I didn't know about? (laughs) All these layers, eh? But his perspective on that sort of partnership, brotherhood, loyalty between these two, and just his his ability to describe that to us. And and he used this movie in context, and he was just a, a fantastic leader. And he motivated us from his own example. And I, and I took that to heart as a, a young soldier. I also wanted to be a leader in the Army. I, I knew that I was just starting a path, but I also had a bit of designs at that point to become an officer and a leader. So he was a great role model for not just me, but many others. And he stayed in the Sea Force after that and became my, you know, after I finished my first block of officer training, I, I was a young second lieutenant and conducted uh, some basic training courses myself. And the first one that I conducted, he was a platoon sergeant for me, a platoon warrant for me on that as well. So we, carried on that relationship at a, at a different level and again he was a he was a great mentor that way he had me over to his house to show me how to build timetables and things like that so you know he just uh, <laughs> just a great leader all the way around probably with a pen and a ruler <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's exactly right that's exactly right please come back and listen to part two with brigadier general rob roy mckenzie thank you for listening to the canadian military history podcast i hope that you've enjoyed this episode If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.